Good morning. Good morning. And welcome. And welcome to the podcastonians of the future. <laughs> they, they need recognition as well. So thank you very much. Those, that opening quatrain um, was from Fitzgerald's translation um, of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Between the dreaming and the coming true is perhaps a waking up, a birth, an awareness of the potential that exists within the actual. Awake, awake, bring your dreams, bring yourselves, bring your hands and voices to make the call and to help build these dreams. But first and foremost, we need to bring our voices because we need to sing. You have no books with you, so you will have to learn this from me. There's uh, no understanding element of uh, trust and perhaps faith. Uh, firstly, that I'll get it right. Uh, so I need a little bit of trust and faith in myself, and hopefully you trust me enough to sing what I offer in a reasonable pitch. It is uh, a song, it's in the Purple Book, uh, so you're most likely to know most of it. And I'll explain that, that little uh, change in a second. You'll, you're most likely to know most of it. I'll go through line by line, and then please repeat after each one. Come, come, whoever you are. I think we can do the whole thing through now, so all, all together with me. Trust me, you are, you're ready. And if it doesn't go perfectly, that is okay. Um, one of the wonderful things about this, with it being five lines, is it can be a five-part round. <laughs> yes, so we will roughly divide one, two, three, four, five. You notice that's not precise. 
And once again, that's okay if you find yourself shifting from one group to the next. Uh, and if we all end up singing at the same time, that's okay too. Uh, so I'll sing through it, say, three times as a round. Getting here. Come, come, whoever you are, heard that um, years ago, back in the States, and the minister at the time um, was, I would sort of describe as a radical Unitarian. He was very keen uh, to look at his religion and to critique it, to be brutally honest with it, and to ask, what can it do better? What, where has it failed? What is not quite right? And he discovered that that hymn, and it's in our purple book, and it's in the gray book in the States, that hymn only has four lines. And for those of you that have sung it before, you'll know which line has been excised. <laughs> Even if you have broken your vow a hundred times. And he delivered a sermon, and he asked, why? Why would that line be taken out? Is it because we've, we just assume, okay, everyone's welcome, so therefore we, we need not talk about people who've tripped in life, who've had missteps, who've failed? Is it something that we're ashamed about? Is it perhaps just a translation that they took from somewhere else? And in fact, when I was looking to make sure I cited it correctly, I discovered there are even other more beautiful and wondrous and strange translations.
Perhaps we thought it was superfluous. Perhaps we thought we need not speak about failure and regret. I have a story for the young and for the young at heart. So you can all consider yourself uh, included in this. I want to ask the children, do either of you, have you uh, any toys that you that have not you haven't broken, but perhaps they've been broken at some point. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what did you do? What what happened? Was it uh, perhaps did you take it to your parents and did did they replace it, or did they say no? <laughs> I'm afraid we'll just have to get rid of it. Um, or perhaps they found a way to mend it. Well, that's how I grew up. I had, you know, I had toys growing up, and especially in my youth, we had a lot of sort of cheap plastic toys, and they broke very easily. Um, if they were very cheap, then it wasn't too much of a bother for my parents to buy another one. Um, uh, equally, uh, wasn't uh, wasn't too hard for my parents to just say, "Well, tough." <laughs> <laughs> and occasionally, if it was something a bit more expensive, they would find a way to uh, to mend it. And as always, there are instances where something cannot be replaced and it cannot be mended, and so you just have to live with its imperfection. And that's what today's story is about. It's about a family uh, that were very poor, so poor that if something broke, it couldn't be replaced and it couldn't be mended. (coughs) It's a story about a bucket. Because this bucket lived with the family for generations. It had been a very good, sturdy, robust bucket in the beginning. But as the years wore on, the bucket got a bit old and a bit creaky. And eventually, it began to leak. (laughs) Well, in this story, in this family, there was a little girl, and every morning she had to go and get water for the family. She had to walk a long ways to a river. So each day she would get the bucket and she would walk to the river. <coughs> she would fill it up. And then she would make her way back home with the water dripping and dripping and dripping. And by the time she got home, the bucket was only half Now this was enough for the family for that that day. And then she'd have to repeat the process day after day. Well, this bucket was uh, not only self-aware, it was also also self-conscious. It was very concerned. It's like, oh, how awful. I'm, I'm an old, decrepit bucket. I'm failing this family. Each day, this little girl has to go and she has to collect the water. And I'm supposed to be a good, sturdy bucket. But instead, I leak like a sieve. The water just pours out of me. And the whole process has to be repeated day after day. Well, it just became too much for the bucket and it cried one night, wailing to itself. Because buckets can talk in this story. (laughs) And the little girl heard that. And in the morning she said, Oh, you sounded so sad. What's what's the matter? And the bucket poured its heart out to her. 
saying, I'm just not good for your family. You need to sell me. You need to sort of have me melted down and sell that and buy yourselves a new bucket. And the girl said, I have an idea. Why don't you have a look at the road while we go to get the water and then have another look at it on the way back? Then I'll get help. That's not going to work. I don't, I'm just going to sit here and, and be in my misery and <laughs> let that be. And she said, no, if you don't do it for yourself, at least do it for me. So with Bucket, which had a very soft spot in his heart for the little girl, said, okay, okay, I will. So once again, she went out for her daily walk with the Bucket. And it looked down and it, it saw the road, nothing significant, nothing fascinating, just a dirt path made it to the river, <coughs> and I thought this was a very fruitless exercise. Of course, I'm going to just see the dirt path again. to some really silly form of meditation. <laughs> and it noticed as it <laughs> that in fact, the path on the way back was littered with flowers. And when I got back to the house, the little girl said, how was the, the view? And said, well, there were, there were some lovely flowers and a big whoop. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a bit of a sarcastic bucket as well. <laughs> and she said, well, did you notice any flowers going out to the river? No. Well, who do you think watered those flowers? And it was at that point that the bucket realized that because it was a leaky bucket, those flowers were able to grow. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoy your days. We will, uh, while the children exit, we will play a piece by John McLeod, uh, the Bear Seuss from his Tambo de Poulenc.
Thank you, Catherine. Yes. <laughs> that piece, um, as I mentioned, was named Versus. It's a French term for lullaby. The music is intended to remind us of the lulling to sleep of babies and children. So in a way, it's supposed to move us not from the dreaming to the coming true, but from what is true to what could be, from the day and then to the night and the dream, from the actual to the potential. But we encounter on our way many who are unaware of their dreams, of this potential, and how we engage and subvert this world of naysayers, including ourselves, is the focus of my talk. <coughs> it is far from straightforward, the subject. subject, not the talk, hopefully. <laughs> so as we pass from the dreaming to the coming true, so too do we pass from the real world to the world that could be. And so a lullaby may be very appropriate. Who here owns a wristwatch? Oh, very good. I used to. Um, well, in fact, I do still have two. Um, I don't know if it's something about my, uh, my physiology, but the strap always seems to break. Um, I think I have a very narrow wrist, so I really pull tight on them. Anyway, I have two, and they're very sentimental. I hold on to them for that reason, and I may get the rep uh, strap replaced eventually. I wonder, though, if any of you have had a peculiar notion about timekeeping uh, that you think of maybe not as obsessively as I do, but perhaps it's entered your mind now and then. So I have a question, and this is rhetorical, for those uh, who do wear a wristwatch. When you look at the time, do you ever think this is the right time? Or ask yourself that question, is this the right time? How do you know that the watch is working when you are not looking at it? <laughs> and I am sure I've just produced a whole room of worriers. <laughs> that any time one is not looking at their watch, they must have a certain amount of faith that their watch will keep on ticking. Its battery will have to have some amount of charge. The springs will have to be wound enough. It will be, have to be in good working order. And you see this all the time in films. Someone misses something particularly important. And they look very perplexed. They scratch their heads. How could this be? They look at their watch. They bring it up to their ear. And they shake it. They sort of tap on it. Did they have too much faith, I wonder? So what is the chief function of a watch? Its cardinal reason for existing. We may be tempted to say a watch is there to tell time. And that's true for us. And I suppose because we created the watch, maybe it's true generally. But I don't think that's the full reason. And if you look at the, one of the earlier terms for watch, and still used on occasion, is the chronometer it's there to, not to tell the time, but to measure time. 
There is a benefit for us to know the time by looking at the watch. But this can only happen if the watch is working well. If we need to constantly look at the watch to make sure that it's still ticking over and over, we would not say that it works well. And I do have a watch, by the way, that <laughs> seems to magically stop every time I sort of put my... I, I see it ticking around, and then I move my hand, and then four hours later I look, and it's at that same time. <laughs> the chief function, time measurement, is only effective for us when it is not seen. I cannot lay too much claim uh, to the origin of this thought. And so I bring with, uh, with me back up in the form of Soren Kierkegaard. In his first major philosoph- philosophical work, Either Or, he writes about the hiddenness of language. Language is the medium absolutely qualified by the spirit, and it is therefore the authentic medium of the idea. In language, the sensuous as medium is reduced to a mere instrument and is continually negated. That is not the case with other media. Neither in sculpture nor in painting is the sensuous a mere instrument. It is rather a component. It would be strangely backward to consider a piece of sculpture or a painting and to behold it in such a way that one were to take pains to see it independently of the sensuous, whereby one would completely cancel its beauty. That is not the case with language. The sensuous is reduced to a mere instrument and is thus annulled. If a person spoke in such a way that we heard the flapping of the tongue, they would be speaking poorly. If they heard in such a way that they heard the vibrations of the air instead of the words, they would be hearing poorly. If they read a book in such a way that they continually saw each individual letter, they would be reading poorly. Language is the perfect medium precisely when everything sensuous in it is negated. So unlike paintings, unlike sculpture, where the sensuous elements, the tactility of the stone, or the visual impression of the painting, the sensuous is part of the experience of the artwork. And instead, language best conveys the ideas that it holds when all that speaks of its existence is silent. I bear some personal experience in this matter. As when I first began taking services, the chief criticism I received was that I could not actually be understood. (laughs) And I don't know how many, those that haven't laughed yet, if that's because you don't quite understand. (laughs) My accent stood almost literally in between the worship and the congregation. 
And an even greater illustration of this was my housemate when I was uh, studying music in Manchester, who was also from the States. She spent a few months in Salford. Um, and for, for before you, that's not the punchline. For three days, <laughs> for three days, whenever she went to the shops, she needed to bring a pencil and paper because her accent and the accent of the shopkeeper were mutually incomprehensible. (laughs) So if the chief function of language is to convey information, then, like the watch, it works best when it is not seen at all. It is as though language is a clear window... And so long as one is not distracted by the dust or scratches, she or he will be able to see the lovely view or let the sun shine through. Let us have a brief moment of appreciation for all the people who work in such a regard, all those elements in our lives that remain hidden, that are efficient and unnoticed the people who designed and maintained our sewers. A pause, a breath of gratitude for people and things we rarely see and whom we only mention when something goes wrong. There could be countless other examples of hidden dependencies, but I'll focus on just one more. Think about your beds. When you lie down at night, you are given a place to sacrifice your conscious self. A room, a spot in which the burdens and decisions and choices are given up. It's not, um, it's not a fruitless sacrifice. What we gain, the rest and the strength for another day, is likely to be far greater than the mere few hours of extra efficiency were we to not sleep. So we go to bed knowing that for six to eight hours we will be passive to the fates. We hope that in sacrificing our consciousness each night we will gain something. But if we were to remain awake knowing the presence of our bed feeling its hardness or softness, its temperature, we may say that the bed does not work well. The bed is there to be forgotten, to be an invisible server, bringing course after course with such finesse that we may venture from the choices of the day to the mercies of the night without interruption. I discovered this firsthand when we got a new mattress. And for a few days, I had the most intense, vivid, colorful dreams that I'd had in a long time. So we certainly do know when a bed does not work. (laughs) I sometimes have difficulty falling asleep. I used to sit there attempting to will myself to give up my will, um, strangely enough, but to no avail. I've since read that if one stays uh, for too long in their bed without falling asleep, it can lead to a bad association. 
I didn't sleep last night, so what are the chances that I'll sleep this night as well? So some people recommend getting up and doing some gentle activity uh, that will help induce slumber. So at times I get up, I wander, I ponder a bit, and I occasionally write. A few times I have written poetry, choosing the sonnet as a form that seems to tax my mind just enough to encourage sleep. I've come to call these nocturnal poems 2 a.m. sonnets, in the tradition, of course, from when they're written. And in the tradition of children's TV, here is one that I prepared earlier. (laughs) The thoughts that keep me up till early morn provoke within a challenge, goal, or fear. Unasked, unanswered, and met with scorn, I pray this cup to pass. To be forlorn with nighttime's canvas, Bleak and blank inside. My mind is gone, a train careening past the stations. Little hope to God is cried. My driverless carriage feels too fast for me to slow it down. And ask, will you remove from me the fear so I may act? Reply, my presence here will help you through, though needful fear a raven's call, the pact from which you grow, from which you learn, my gift to you who felt in this the night adrift. I had written it when I felt the burden of knowing a difficult journey with personal barriers and knew that I would have to make some really tough efforts when those points were coming into focus and I couldn't sleep. I was praying that these barriers might be removed and I suddenly felt a calm assurance that no, the barriers will still be there. But that was okay as I was not alone and that the efforts to overcome those challenges was very much what I needed to do. So I wrote down that sonnet at two, about 3 a.m. I was, I was pleased with it, so I posted it online, as you do nowadays. And as soon as, of course, I saw it go up, I realized that there was an error in it. <laughs> who, by the way, just off person, who picked up on that slight mistake? See, this is so telling. This is so much... Um, I think speaking as a musician, I hear every mistake that happens in every performance. And then people say, oh, that was lovely. And I think, oh, goodness, not, not by my ears. But then that, I begin to sound a bit pretentious. So I, I usually just keep quiet nowadays. <laughs> anyway, the rhyme scheme in that first quatrain went A-B-A-A. In other, in other sonnet forms, or as in the sonnets as a whole, it should have been A-B-A-B. After I had written it, as I said, I recognized the mistake, but I chose to keep it in. So the glass from which this poem is supposed to shine has now been marred. Another scratch has diminished its potential and broken the view. 
Such scratches, such mistakes, such imperfections may make cynics of us if we let them. Why should we dream at all if our dreams are only going to be broken by us? If we cannot see something through to perfection, then why go down that painful road at all? Many hold a great deal of criticism in themselves. Reflecting on my dreams, I see many that I have failed. Many attempts have gone belly up. There have been many not quite theirs. And perhaps the most painful of all, the never attempted dreams. The dreams deferred, as written by Langston Hughes. What a challenging world where we are given such great images of possibility, but not the means to see it through. How many people have fallen into this slough of despond, I cannot imagine. And for those who have triumphed over the voice of reserve in their own heart, does the journey become any easier? Are there not just as many naysayers outside of our heads? Bitterness, envy, regret turns us not only away from our own dreams, but from providing support for other dreams as well. One of the most biting criticisms, one that, for me anyway, hurts the hardest, sadly, of course, which I heard somewhat recently, was... Yeah, in your dreams. Who here has felt that flowering in their heart, the birth of something great and grand, something that manifests joy, anticipation, and energy, energy for the task. So it's not just mere dreaming, but the possibility feels tangible. Only to have it rooted out by that claim. Yeah, in your dreams. There is nothing like speaking of possibility and dreaming to bring the cynics out. I am saddened by their despair. I long for it to pass in those who are afflicted with it. Along with the inadequacy of solutions offered by others, one may hold a sense that they are being passed by. For the non-dreamer, the folly of dreams is that it is an impossible task, doomed to failure as Don Quixote's attack on the windmills. I remember that physiologically there is little difference between fear and anticipation. There's an increased heart rate, there's sweat, there's a shortness of breath. And I think equally true, what some see as the excitement of plunging into their dreams others see as fear. So if you are a dreamer and you meet a cynic, remember that their world may be vastly different. Have compassion for those who have sacrificed their dreams. And if that is you, hold yourself as well. And that is not to say don't pursue your dreams. When sharing dreams, not here, of course, we are met with, sure, in an ideal world, or impossible. 
And yet, human history is so much the history of possibility becoming real. In fact, that is what history is. Whatever has been built, scientific, artistic achievements, all, good or bad, have come from the potential to the actual. Any conscious decision that someone has made in the world has come from them to the world. For decades, scientists had described the four-minute mile as impossible, mechanically impossible. And yet, within 13 months of Roger Bannister running three minutes, 59.4 seconds, four others had surpassed that impossibility. And within five years, 20 more had accomplished it. The runner, Matt Frazier, commented that it was the lack of confidence that kept the record unbroken. And those few who saw the potential and saw it as a possibility had to build up their own mental reserves to battle the chorus of in your dreams. And once that dream was achieved, it was so much easier for those others who dreamed it to achieve it. I think we have to build up our mental reserves to challenge those who proclaim our dreams to be impossible, including ourselves. I thought and remembered uh, earlier this week the reading from Marianne Williamson. Who are you not to be brilliant, gorgeous, and talented? Every day, something new, something beautiful comes into existence. Who says that we are not allowed to be part of that creation? Who has the audacity to challenge our right to be part of something fantastic? The best response to the expression in your dreams is to be the raucous affirmation with great knowledge that it is only by awakening into the reality of the world that one can begin the task of building their dreams. If one were to say to you, impossible, then I suggest you reply with the words of Philippe Petit, who traversed the World Trade Center towers in 1974, by saying, yes, it is impossible. So let us get started. (laughs) For all those great and good the Thomas Edisons and the Malala Yousafzais, the Roger Bannisters and the Amelia Earharts. They took impossible not to be a line in the sand, but to be a challenge. This isn't to imply that the action will be easy. Barriers still certainly exist. And it, is not, uh, and it is in our facing them that our dreams will become all the more meaningful. This is our desert, writes Thomas Merton, to live facing despair, but not to consent to wage war against despair unceasingly. Thomas Edison, in his development of a cheap light bulb, said, I have not failed 700 times. I have not failed once. 
I have succeeded in proving that those 700 ways will not work. (laughs) Great musicians have labored over their works. There are stories of songs and compositions forming ready-made in one's mind. But equally, people have had a seed that requires an awful lot of tending and watering. Cynics will be here for a long time yet, outside of us and inside too. What I paint and what I describe sounds perhaps a bit rose-tinted, and I wouldn't blame you for proclaiming, but Cody, that's not possible. I share those moments. I am a cynic at times. Just as we need a rest from the real world to form our dreams, so too must we be in the world with its pauses and and obstructions to help guide our dreams. What would be a dream without the real world? To lie asleep without recourse, to sharing amongst friends, to see so clearly without the joy of actually building. This Tuesday past was the opening of a new production of Hamlet at the Barbican Theatre, starring Benedict Cumberbatch. It is a performance which has already gained some notoriety um, before its opening night. As, uh, as for instance, one, one example, the choice to put that great soliloquy, to be or not to be, was put at, orig- at the beginning and in the sort of original uh, first quattro version. This decision was backtracked during uh, public uh, rehearsals. In an editorial of this event uh, in The Guardian, Martin Kettle points out that that first quattro of Shakespeare's play, we see a much different soliloquy. The point is not that everything magically comes right, comes out right on that first night, but that getting things right is hard work, even for geniuses. Hamlet didn't drop fully formed from the heavens onto Shakespeare's desk. It went up blind alleys and got lost in crossings out and tangled plot lines before emerging as the play we know. The process of rehearsal and the weeks of preview performances have given the people in charge an inbuilt opportunity to see which of their ideas worked and which didn't. So as, uh, as far as we seek to reach our dreams, we are unlikely to achieve them perfectly. I don't say this as a cynic, nor as a concerned parent who worries about their ch- child's future life choices. I say this as a passionate dreamer, a failed perfectionist, as someone who lives in a city that is fast losing its green space, Those cracks in the pavement, that is where the grass grows. Our dreams are only part of our life's story. Our stretching out to them and not fully realizing them may be those cracks in the concrete walls in which we build ourselves. Those small mishaps and large failures may be God or the divine, truth or right purpose poking through. 
Alan Saunders in 1957 wrote, Life is what happens to us while we are making other plans. So dream. Dream on. And that, I know, can be used as an insult, but I say it from the heart. Yes, do that. But do not be ashamed when dreams do not happen. Do not hesitate in attempting dreams. But also do not consider a failed dream. And I dislike that expression. For who is to say that where our dreams were supposed to go would have been better than where our dreams actually took us? Do not consider a dream that hasn't come to fruition as a sign of failure in life. Furthermore, let us return to uh, that impression Kierkegaard made uh, regarding language, that it is perfect in so far as it is invisible. If it is supposed to convey an idea, how can it do this while we are focused on the tongue flapping, the vibrations in the air, or the beauty of the print? In this image, language is a glass through which we see ideas. However, I'd argue that any attempt at communication is going to be imperfect. There are bound to be 60 impressions of this talk. And thus, my attempt at describing something is but a scratch on a window pane. And so too is life. How often would we say we achieve a perfect action? And I'm not necessarily denying the existence of a perfect action. Kierkegaard describes the knight of faith, someone who is as a dancer and can leap into the air and land perfectly unchanged. However, I would put my hand up to say that based on my preconceptions of what I want to achieve and what I have wanted to achieve, nothing I do could be described as perfect, but is instead subject to the vagaries of the world and to the limitations of my own strength. So throughout life, we are constantly scratching that glass. Every attempt will leave a mark. But let us not feel lost in this endeavor. For every time we scratch a glass, we have an opportunity to turn it into a beautiful etching. And then the window is no longer supposed to be clear. Now it is an object of beauty all on its own. So our lives may not be merely to achieve our dreams, but have value and worth in their own right, whether these dreams are reached or not. I sometimes imagine going back 15 years and saying to myself, you're not going to be a euphonium soloist. (laughs) But your life is going to be okay. And just because I am not a euphonium soloist does not mean that my musical training was worthless. I bring music to worship. I see the balance and the proportion taught in music theory, and I see that when I am preparing my services and sermons. And 15 years ago, I certainly did not think that my music theory classes would have much value. (laughs) 
So it may be that in attempting our dreams, attempting them, whether they are sure or foolhardy, whether they will be achieved to a degree or not at all, but in attempting our dreams, our lives will gain meaning. <coughs> yes, there was a missing passion when I went to music college, but it has led to a deeper understanding of myself. So we are dream makers, born into a world of cynics. How do we foster our dreams in such an inhospitable environment? Well, let us consider changing that environment. I try to keep away from illicit activity, and I would never in such a position as I am now encourage anyone else to do so knowing equally that this is going online. <laughs> I exist with a sad and present reality that my welcome here is not only with the blessing of all of you, but to a certain degree is also with the blessing from the state. What freedom I have been given in this pulpit is in part exchanged by the knowledge that deportation exists as an option for this radical. <laughs> and I love you all too much to risk losing my right to be here. I do hold in high regard those who sacrifice their liberty for their faith, who have spent time in jail when battling injustice. So, with that in mind, I read from an activist's handbook, Beautiful Trouble by Andrew Boyd. Many of us spend so much time trying to stop bad things from happening that we rarely take the time to sketch out how things could be better, let alone go out and create a little slice of the future we want to live in. Prefigurative interventions seek to address that imbalance. The lunch counter sit-ins of the U.S. civil rights movement are frequently re referenced as defiant, courageous, and ultimately successful acts of resistance against America's Jim Crow-era apartheid. They were certainly that, but they were also profoundly prefigurative. The students' actions, mixed-race groups violating the law by sitting at lunch counters and demanding to be served, foreshadowed victory and prefigured the world they wanted to live in. They were enacting the integration they wanted. Prefigurative interventions are direct actions cited at the point of assumption where beliefs are made and unmade, and the limits of the possible can be stretched. The goal of a prefigurative intervention is twofold, to offer a compelling glimpse of a possible and better future, and also, slyly or baldly, to point up the poverty of imagination of the world we actually do live in. 
If hope truly is a muscle that we build by exercising, then interventions that prefigure the world we want to live in are one of the best ways to work that muscle. Black and white people, students, wanted to sit at the same counter. And that was exactly how they protested. It was successful because it was so simple, it was so potent. This is the world we want to be in, so we are going to make that happen. They brought their dream, the potential, they brought it in early to the world. We're so often told that the course of events in the world go anxiety, then calm, war, then peace, suffering, then paradise. To bring that ideal into the world prematurely may not win many friends. Those students protesting the unjust laws faced ridicule, malice, hatred, abuse. Just as dreams can make the cynic apoplectic, so too can fairness make the unjust seethe with anger. But for those who dream of peace, they must make it an option. Show the world that the impossible is, in fact, possible. Another prefigurative intervention, in my mind, is guerrilla gardening. Guerrilla as in warfare, not as in grrr. <laughs> this has been uh, pursued as a protest movement by uh, for instance, Richard Reynolds, a Londoner, who highlights historical instances uh, of people trying to claim public and private land. The modern movement sees people reclaim and beautify land illegally. Again, my comments do not reflect an endorsement of illegal activities. <laughs> Verges, roundabout, vacant lots are used to grow fruits and flowers. Often unknown, out of sight or awareness for the everyday commuter, these are fostered by people who dream of a greener, more glorious city. To call out the distress of the world, to sow flowers amongst concrete and vegetables in train stations, is to dream of a day when beauty will be everywhere, food available for all. And the greatest thing is that it just takes a few seeds, perhaps a little water. The sun provides light and warmth, the clouds more rain. I'm sure avid guerrilla gardeners know where to plant what in Britain. And that is a point here. We can dream small dreams, large dreams, ambitious dreams, practical dreams, dreams that might be achievable in a day, or dreams that might take a whole lifetime. But the only way to the clouds will be up the mountain, one step at a time. Grueling effort, slips, wrong turns, yes, but one conscious step at a time. And these efforts are unlikely to be seen by the world. We are often, early on, unable to walk properly. But who scolds a baby for misplacing its first step? 
Why should we challenge our early <coughs> endeavors? The cynics will keep this information from you, so please listen carefully. Our dreams come from and become the beds upon which we lie, the window through which understanding and true purpose passes, the vehicle whereby our lives gain meaning like language, and the watch that steadily ticks by as the world goes on. These dreams are hidden the hidden necessity of the universe and of life. So howsoever we discover the dreams we sought that turned out different in the end, we must not stop from dreaming. Yes, it's ironic that we can only seek perfection through our imperfections. That in seeking something we may fail to grasp it and yet gain ourselves. But were we not to seek it, we would surely not find ourselves. I know not achieving our dreams can be painful. I remember sleepless nights, waking up crying when I knew my life would change, when the only certainty I felt was that knowledge that I was being thrown back into the arms of chaos. But my past dreams have come to fertilize the shoots of my present life. Give a moment to think about what would happen if we failed to dream, or if we let our dreams linger without any action in the world, however small. Consider for a moment Langston Hughes' poem, A Dream Deferred. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun, or fester like a sore, and then run Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode? What will happen to us if we defer our dreams? Even if our dreams are those wide, great epics We learn from the psychologist Rollo May that the human being cannot live in a condition of emptiness for very long. If one is not growing towards something, then one does not merely stagnate. The pent-up potentialities turn into morbidity and despair, and eventually into destructive actions. So, to help those cynics whose deferred dreams, pent-up potentialities, lie decaying in their hearts, let us seek to create our dreams, one imperfect step after another. Let us hope that our sharing of dreams may warm those hearts cold as stone, and if not, I hope our dreams may create a better world. My dreams are unlikely to come perfectly true. 
But that is okay because I'm not perfect. In fact, I'd be actually a bit embarrassed with perfect dreams. Maybe mine were too vague to actually create. I suspect were I to have achieved them, I would ask, well, what now? And that's my advice for those who have achieved their dreams. Congratulations. What now? As an attempt to uh, distill some of the central ideas in this talk, I have written a hymn on which we will nearly close. I don't write hymns often. And I say that uh, not to be self-effacing, not to present false pride. I say it because we are challenged in life to present ourselves to each other, to be held and welcomed. And with you, I feel that is possible. It is sung to a well-known tune, and you get two chances at it. And you will be okay. You will be okay if it isn't spot on.
you for coming, for singing, and for listening. As this talk ends, we are greeted with Debussy's piece Syrinx for solo flute, a significant piece in flute repertoire and very formative in the development of flute music in the 20th century. So it's a good piece. (laughs) And I say that remembering as well that it was written for a play that was never finished. So I leave you with this. Remember the value in our unaccomplished dreams.